Good morning, everybody. Man, I get a shout out on the morning I'm preaching. I mean, that's, that's like a double honor. Thank you so much, Pastor David. I know it's supposed to be pastor appreciation, but um, yeah. Aren't we thankful for our pastors here at Trinity? Yeah, give it up. Give it up for them. They work, they work tirelessly to serve us and to serve our community. And so uh, I, for one, am thankful to be a part of a church that has great pastors. And, um, and let's honor them this month and, and beyond. So um, David's love language is food. Take him out to dinner. You'll always win. Hey, I'm excited to, um, to close out this series, Leave Your Nets. And, and um, this morning, uh, I hope to challenge you as I also am challenged by the Word of God and encourage us to step out and do what I think is one of the most, if not the most important things in life. It's really the heartbeat, the mission of God for us. And so if you're willing, I'm, I'm hoping this morning that God is going to do something in each of us and challenge us in a deeper and a greater way. And that when we leave this place today, we're going to be equipped, encouraged, and challenged that God has something more for us to change our community and ultimately to change the world. Uh, I wanted to start off by some of you, some of you may not have a, a chance to kind of know who I am or my story. I, I grew up in a church my whole life, so I, I'm, I'm a churchy, that's what I call them. Anybody else, any churchies in here? Yep, you remember the days where you were forced to go to every service, Sunday night service, Wednesday night, Thursday night Bible study, Tuesday night women's study. Sometimes my mom dragged me along to that one too, it was really embarrassing. Right? You remember what that was like. That was my childhood. I grew up in church. I was there all the time. And, and I remember one year I was in middle school and I went away to a summer camp, very similar to the summer camps that I run now. And I remember uh, the, the, the pastor who was speaking said, if you want to hear from God, come up front. And I came up to an altar kind of like this. And I remember for the first time in my life feeling like God spoke to me. Not in an audible voice, but I knew it was God. And he said, one day you're going to be a pastor. Now, like most of you, I knew that pastors only had to work for about 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. So I was like, that sounds good, Lord. I'm, I'm in for that, you know. I'm, I mean, I don't like speaking in front of people, but I'll figure that out for a 30-minute work week. That sounds great. And so, um, so that was middle school, and I was like, all right, God. And, and I, went through, I went through middle school and high school, and, and um, I graduated high school, and I went off to Bible college. And I remember being at Bible college and looking around and feeling like, what am I doing here? This is crazy. But I also thought, man, I can't wait to one day be a youth pastor. I, I studied youth ministry, and I was, I was always thinking about what it was going to be like. And, and, um, and I didn't have a great youth ministry experience, so I thought about, oh, I could do it different, and we could have this. And, and I remember dreaming about what youth ministry was going to be like. You know, like, one day I'll get up there, and we'll have youth service, and, and, and we'll probably have hundreds of kids from the community just coming in, and, and they're just going to be sitting up front listening to me preaching, and probably a lot of kids, every kid will get saved every week, and they'll be going out and going on the mission field. They'll probably be starting orphanage. Is. You know, I don't know what God's going to do, but, I, I, you know, it's going to be crazy. They're going to be leading their friends to Jesus. Maybe there'll be an article written in the paper about me. I don't know. Who knows, right? I was dreaming about what youth ministry was going to be like, but surely it was going to be awesome. And then I graduated Bible college. My wife and I moved to Long Island, New York, and we started being full-time youth pastors. And I remember for the entire first year, I hated it. It was the complete opposite of what I thought it was going to be. And we'd show up every week, and we'd, we'd be trying to energize the kids. And we're like, let's go. This is going to be awesome. And they're, you know, they're like, boo, from the back. I mean, have you ever been booed mid-sermon? It's very humbling. 
Um, and, and they were just not into it. They didn't want to be there. They, it, was, it was terrible. Every week, my wife and I would get home and be like, thank God we don't have to do that again for another week. Right? That was, that, that was, that was the first year. It was, it was really tough. It was brutal. And, um, and as I started to kind of move along, and as the years went by, I developed this idea about what ministry was. And in fact, it had kind of been my idea of my whole life. And the idea was this, that ministry was, if you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come, right? Everybody, you heard that saying before. And the perspective was this. The job of the church and the pastor was to create a space appealing enough that people would come through the doors, hear your message, and be transformed. And the job of the people was to bring people in so that the pastor could say a message so that they could be transformed and their behavior would change and their life would change and everything would change. And the key to changing a community, the key to changing the world, the key to changing people was building a place that was appealing enough so that they would come. That was my mentality. And so every week, when, when a few more kids would come, we'd be encouraged. We'd be like, oh, they probably came because the music was better this week. And, and the weeks when the, a few less kids would come, we'd be discouraged. We'd say, all right, this week we've got to adjust the lighting. Maybe we've got to buy some new lights, right? Maybe we've got to change the ambiance. And all that stuff is fun and it's cool. But my mindset was, if I tweak that, then they'll come. Then change will happen. And actually, it wasn't until I'd been a full-time pastor for many, many years, and I went away actually with Pastor David, and we went to a conference in Texas that my whole perspective was transformed. Because when we went to this conference, it was a conference of hundreds of college students. And we started to meet college students, and every single conversation I had was almost exactly the same. I would go up to a student, hey, what's up, man? How's your, what's your name? And they'd say, hey, my name's John. They'd say, that guy over here is my small group leader. He led me to Jesus and discipled me. And those guys over there, those are all my small group guys. Two of them are being baptized in water this weekend. I led them to Jesus. I'm discipling them. Every person, one after another after another, had been led to the Lord by someone, discipled in the faith, and is now leading others to Jesus and discipling them. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of college students who a year, two years, three years ago didn't know Jesus, and now not only know Jesus, but they're leading others in discipleship in Jesus' name. And for me, it was transformative because I had worked in the church for six, seven years, and I'd never seen anything like it. See, the truth is, for the majority of my time in church, most people who loved Jesus and were attending church faithfully didn't have any sort of intentional relationship with a non-believer. They didn't have any spiritual fruit in, in the sense that they had led someone to Jesus and were discipling them and that those people were going on. It was a foreign concept to me. What I saw transformed everything about what I thought about the mission of God and how the church was supposed to operate. And we came back and it changed everything. And this morning, here's what I want to encourage you to lean into this text, into this message. Because all around us, all around the world, all around even this room are people who are completely hopeless, who are completely broken, people who are desperate for change, people who are addicted to, to drugs and alcohol and pornography, people who are putting all their hope and money and success and climbing the ladder, all their hope and approval and security, people who are only, only to find that none of that stuff satisfies and they're always longing for something more. Around us are those who are filled with depression and anxiety. What's at stake? Everything is at stake. 
So this morning, I want to encourage you to lean into this message because here's what I believe. In this text and throughout the scriptures, Jesus not only gives us the solution to the problem, but he also encourages us and empowers us that we can be a part of his mission to rescue and redeem the whole world. Amen? So here's what I want to do. If you're with me, if you're with me, let me hear you say, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read our text this morning, then I'm going to pray, and we'll jump in, all right? So we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Here's what it says. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for all that you've done so far. Thank you that you're a God of miracles, you're a God of restoration. And we know that in the midst of brokenness and hurt and pain, God, in the midst of people who are struggling all over the world, all around us, God, even in our own families, Lord, we thank you that you are the hope, that you are the transformation that comes, God, that you can bring miracles, you can bring life where there's death and hope where there's despair. So this morning, I pray that you would instill that hope into us and also that you would encourage us to walk out your mission, the mission you've given us in your name the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at this text this morning. And um, this text is written by a guy named Paul. And if you remember the story, Paul uh, used to be named Saul. He was, he was wildly persecuting Christians and had this radical transformation, knocked off his horse, met Jesus. It changes his name. And he goes on after that and begins to be discipled by the disciples who were with Jesus. Right? So Paul never spent time physically with Jesus, but he immediately after being transformed by God and meeting Jesus, he then becomes discipled by Jesus' disciples. He spends time with them. And then Paul goes on, and, and he ends up writing a lot of the New Testament, and he's this really profound figure. And, and one of the things that we see in Paul is he gives evidence to the plan that Jesus has laid out to accomplish his mission for the gospel to go forward in all the world. And that plan is discipleship, right? You remember in the book of Matthew when he, he lays this out to us? And, and, and what does he say? He says, Matthew 29, 28, 19, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's the mission that Jesus has given to all of us. And Paul lays out in this text, how do we do it? What are some principles that we can take away, discipleship principles we can take away from this text? And so in this text, Paul is writing to his spiritual son, a man named Timothy. And this is a second letter, and, and, uh, and he's writing him to do a couple of things. And in fact, in this short little two verses, I think there's some really profound truths that we can pull away. And so the first thing, th first aspect of discipleship I want to look at is this. Paul loved Timothy. Paul loved Timothy. Right? So when you look at this, in verse 2 it says, you, or verse 1 it says, you then my son. You then my son. Now, we, it's easy to quickly read over that, but if you actually look in the original language, this has pretty profound meaning. Paul is using words of deep affirmation for Timothy. He's expressing his deep devotion and love to Timothy. There's a principle, an aspect of discipleship here, a, a gem that we cannot quickly look over. Because what it tells us is if you want to disciple somebody, there has to be a deep love and commitment to that person. There is no discipleship without that. 
right? This isn't some televangelist that Timothy doesn't know. This isn't some distant person, some stranger that he met on the street one or two times. This is a man, Paul, who has spent time with Timothy. He's broken bread with Timothy. He's been in homes together. They've probably told jokes and made fun of each other. I mean, that's what I like to think about, you know? Who knows? We don't have evidence of that. But at the very least, like these two have spent time with each other. They've probably cried. They've probably laughed. They've invested in each other's lives. Paul knows Timothy. Paul loves Timothy. Now, one of the things that when we think about love and the aspect of discipleship and really loving something, there's, there's two things that come to mind. And number one is, is time. Right? You can't have a deep affection and love without time. There's no way to short-circuit that. Anybody that's in a, a, in a long-term, meaningful relationship, maybe marriage, right? If you're in a healthy marriage and you've been married for a certain period of time, one thing that you know is that how you felt at first is different than how you feel over the long term because the time that you spend together transforms you. It does something in you. And there's no way to get the, I, we've been married 10 years at the six months point, right? Because you have to have the time. You have to have the experience. You have to be with each other and know each other. The same is true in discipleship. You can't have a deep, meaningful, transforming discipleship relationship with somebody where they know that you love and care for them no matter what without time invested. The second thing that it takes is intentionality. It takes us actually saying, I am going to focus and intentionally carve out this time, this space in my life, to have this loving relationship with somebody. Not all that different than marriage, right? We have to work at it. We have to try hard. The same is true in discipleship. And the problem with this is oftentimes we think that discipleship will just happen. So we think, well, I'll just invite someone to church. They'll come in. They'll hear the message. It'll be great. You know, we'll see each other. I'll say, hey, how you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Okay, God bless. And we all leave, right? And we think, oh, that's discipleship, like God is doing something. But in reality, it's not. In reality, for someone to feel loved, we have to have time and intentionality, meaning we look at our life and we say, okay, here's my schedule. Here's all the things that I do. Here's all the stuff that I love. How am I going to be intentional at carving out and sacrificing some things that I love so that I can be with this person? so that I can love this person. So if the person you're discipling is your neighbor, how am I going to go out of my way to invite them into my home for dinner? How am I going to go out of my way? Sorry, I thought this was muted. How am I going to go out of my way to, to fight for them? How am I going to go out of my way to fight for them? How am I going to go out of my way to invite them to, to my house, to invite them over to, to have meals with me and sacrifice, right? What am I willing to give up? And sometimes that means looking at our schedule and going, man, I really love to watch Netflix tonight. But you know what would be more important? Me praying for this person or me inviting this person to coffee or me going out to dinner. Man, I'd love to just be our family this weekend for Sunday dinner. But you know what would be more important? us inviting those neighbors over. Man, I'd love to go out to lunch with just my friends after church, but you know what would be more important? Me going and inviting that person who's here for the first time. You see, you want to have a discipleship relationship with someone where they know you love them? Guess what it takes? It takes time and intentionality. And the only way to get those two things is to be willing to sacrifice in our life. The question is, what are we willing to sacrifice? What are we willing to lay down to say, I will do these things? It's going to take, take work. And so my challenge to you for, for this first point is this. What is God calling you to sacrifice? 
What things in your life that maybe you like doing, you enjoy doing, what are, those, what are those things that God's saying, would you give this up to be more focused and more intentional about loving people that are around you? See, Paul loved Timothy. The second aspect of discipleship we find is Paul fought for Timothy. So if you go back up to the verse, here's what it says. You then, my son, right, he loves him. And then he says this, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what is he saying there? Well, what he's doing is he's actually fighting for Timothy with the gospel. So what he, what he knows is happening right now is Timothy is out doing ministry. He's out trying to make disciples as well, and he's facing hardship. He's facing persecution. He's facing challenges. He's facing difficulty. Different than the difficulty we face, but the truth is we all face it, right? We all face challenges and difficulty. Paul knows this because he loves Timothy as a relationship. So he's now writing and encouraging him. He's fighting for Timothy's faith and Timothy's mission, but notice what he's fighting for. He doesn't fight with good advice. He fights with truth. How many know there's a difference between good advice and truth? How many know there's a difference between our, our perspective or our opinions and truth, right? How many know there's a difference between our preferences and truth? There's a big difference between the two. Paul does not uh, write to Timothy and go, hey, ma'am, uh, two cents here. I just, I, I, if I were you, I'd probably give up. Like, it's pretty tough, you know, or maybe play it safe. Or, you know, you've done a great job. It's time to retire, right? He doesn't give him his advice. What he does is he encourages him in the Grace that is in Christ Jesus, which is the gospel. He's reminding him of the truth, not that Paul says about Timothy, but that Jesus says about Timothy. It's the gospel declared over him. He's saying you're, you're, you're on mission for God. God has a plan for your life. You're in his grace. You're in his mercy. You're in his power. Be reminded of those things. The problem is oftentimes when it comes to discipleship, we're more quick to advocate our perspective, our opinions, our personality than we are the truth of the gospel. We try to fight for people with stuff that doesn't really matter as much as fighting for them with the gospel. I remember when I was at my first church, um, there was a, it was a pretty conservative church. We had to wear suits every Sunday, and, um, and some of you would love to see me in a suit. It ain't going to happen unless it's a wedding or a funeral. Um, but we wore a suit every Sunday, and it was, it, we would do these outreaches every week. Um, we were down by the beach, and we'd offer to pray for people and invite them to church. And one, one Sunday, I remember seeing a, a visitor walk in through the back. And, um, and you kind of noticed when a new person walked in, and, and he came in, and he looked like he had seen some better days. He was, he was rough. He had a hat on, and he was just, you know, obviously had been going through a difficult time. And he comes in, and he sits in the very back row. And I remember watching one of our ushers, who was a great guy. I loved him, good friend, well-meaning, good heart. But the usher walked over to the back row to the gentleman, and, and I see him lean down and whisper something in his ear. And then the gentleman gets up and walks out the back and leaves. Don't see him again. So I'm like, man, what happened? So after church, I go back to the usher, and I remember the encounter. Again, great guy, well-meaning, good heart, but I remember him telling me with, with almost a joy that he had accomplished something great in his heart. He said, he said, yeah, I went over to him, and I said, hey, in this church, we don't wear hats. And so he got up and left. And he was, he was, he was proud that he had fought for some sense of truth, right? 
a, 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 however you feel about hats, it doesn't matter. It's not the point. The point is this, right? It was a personal conviction that he had fought for more importantly than the gospel. In that moment for him, the dress code of the church culture mattered more than the truth of this man getting to hear about who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. So he elevated personal preference, cultural preference, over the truth of the gospel. And oftentimes this is what we do in church, right? We fight for lesser things and we forget the greater things. And so we walk into church and we go, oh man, I don't, this music is not my style. I don't like this. Or, oh, I wish this was different. Or we see, we see someone come in and, and they're not dressed the way we think they should. They don't talk the way we think they should. They don't act the way we think we should. And we go, man, this is not right. Or, or maybe for you, it's you go, go over to your neighbor's house. Just recently, I was over at my neighbor's house who I've been trying to disciple, I've been trying to reach. And, and, and guess what? He doesn't talk the way that I would talk. Right? He doesn't use the same language that I was used. He doesn't, he doesn't do the same activities that I would do. But the question is, when we're in those moments, are you feeling offended or are you feeling deep love and affection? Because oftentimes what happens is we go, I can't believe they would say that around me. How dare they? I can't believe they would talk like that, act like that, do those things. And instead of feeling a deep love and affection and fighting for them with the gospel, the way Jesus feels about them, we think through our own eyes, our own perspective, and our own preferences. We do it all the time. One of the things I've realized oftentimes is, well, here's the truth of Scripture. The more mature that we get, the less we should care about our preferences when it comes to church. You shouldn't care. What you should care more about is, is the next generation being reached. Are people coming to know Jesus, right? I don't care what the music is. It may not be my thing. But are the next generation being reached? Unfortunately, oftentimes, the more mature that we get, the longer that we are in a place, in a church, in a part of it, we somehow think our preferences are more important than other people's. What would it look like if the more mature we became, the more we fought for the gospel and less for our preferences? One of the best, one of the best examples that I, I ever witnessed, that same exact church, was every night at youth group, we had, we had a little old lady. She was in her late 80s, and every night, she would, every night we had a youth group, she would walk into the youth room, rap music going. I guarantee you it wasn't her style. And she would come in with cookies every single week. She would go around and hug every single teenager. She would hand them out free cookies every single week and she acted like she loved the environment just to love on those kids there's a woman who could care less about her preferences and cared way more about the mission of God and was willing to fight for the next generation with the gospel amen so Paul loved Timothy Paul fought for Timothy lastly Paul sends Timothy he sends him the text says this, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, and the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Now in this last verse, it's a powerful aspect and principle of discipleship. And it's the idea of transgenerational discipleship. How many of you are grandparents in here? Okay, how many great-grandparents? Any great-grandparents? Okay, we got a couple. All right. That's a super hard club to be in. Here's the, here's the amazing thing. Being a grandparent 
is a difficult club to be in. Being a great grandparent is a really difficult club to be in. However, when it comes to spiritual lineage, every person in this room can be in those clubs. And in fact, biblically, we're encouraged that that's what the Christian life should look like. So in this text, it's interesting, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's laying out the idea of spiritual lineage, the idea that what God has done in you, he wants to do through you. That's something you've heard Pastor David say, right? To be a follower of Jesus is not just to receive and go, oh, thank you, God, for changing my life, but is then to live that out for others to receive the same thing. And so Paul says to Timothy, in this verse, he says, the things that you have heard me say, right? So Timothy is his spiritual son. You've heard me say, that's one generation. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people. So then he tells Timothy, you go take what I've told you, and you go entrust that to reliable people. That's Paul's grandchildren, Timothy's children, right? So it's two generations now. He says, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So that's now four generations Paul's great-grandchildren, Timothy's grandchildren, you got four generations mentioned in this one text. This is the heart of discipleship. This is what it's supposed to look like for you and I in each of our lives as we go and make disciples. That each one of us is supposed to be a father or a mother, is supposed to be a grandfather, a grandmother, a great-grandfather, a great-grandmother, so on and so forth. That what God has done in us is not meant to stay in us, but it's meant to be done through us for others. The expectation of a follower of Christ is that we should be able to look around and say, that's my spiritual son, that's my spiritual daughter. That's my spiritual grandson, that's my spiritual granddaughter. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Paul doesn't just love Timothy. He doesn't just fight for Timothy. He sends Timothy. He makes sure Timothy knows that to be a Christian is to have a mission, and the mission is to make disciples. And so the, the, the question for us is, who's our spiritual sons and daughters? Who's our spiritual grandsons and granddaughters? See, in my experience in the church, there are so many Christians who are missing out on what God has for them because when they look around, there are no spiritual sons and daughters. They've been receiving, they've been having God do things in them, but they've not been allowing God to do things through them. And I believe this text encourages us that Jesus has something more. One of, my, um, one of my most incredible experiences in ministry of seeing this play out is I remember when I was a youth pastor, um, we had a young man who came into the youth group. His name is Namit. And I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again for, for the sake of, um, uh, of, of how well it, it communicates this point. And Namit comes into our youth group like many youth do. The reason they come to youth is he was interested in a girl. And so um, that's okay. We'll take him how we get him, and then Jesus will change him. So um, he came in. He was interested in a girl, and, and um, we started building a relationship. And I started inviting him into my house and hanging out with him and grabbing coffee with him and, and um, just trying to love on him and build a relationship. And Namit was a Hindu. He came from a strong Hindu home. And, uh, and he came for the girls, but he heard the gospel, and he was loved on by Christians, not just myself but others. And over time, Namit's heart began to become more and more open to the gospel. And I remember the day that we were at a youth retreat we invited him to, and Jesus changed his life. And he committed his heart to Christ, I remember. And, and he's like, man, I, I want to do this, but my family will cut me off. He's like, if I, if I, if I go, and be, they, they're fine with me believing in Jesus as one God, but if I say he's the only God, they'll cut me off. And we started to disciple him. We started to love on him. And we saw his faith grow. And we saw his faith grow. 
And as his faith began to grow, the reality of the persecution that he was going to face from his immediate family, from his extended family, began to grow bigger and bigger. By this time, Namit was in college, and he was going to study to be a doctor. His family was excited about that until one day God told him, you're going to be a pastor. And I remember him coming back and wrestling with it in tears in my house going, I don't know what my parents are going to do if I tell them. This will be the straw that broke the camel's back. But yet he moved forward in his faith. He walked forward. And and I remember him him dealing and walking through all of the hate and all the frustration because his parents had all these hopes for him. And they didn't really know what pastors did like me, but they knew they didn't make quite as much as doctors. So um, so they, they were, needless to say, they were a little disappointed. Right? And, but Namit walked through that, and, and, and I, I just watched him over the years as we loved him, discipled him, and others did the same as his faith grew and grew and grew. And by the time that I left and, and stepped into the role that I'm in now, Namit ended up taking and becoming the next pastor that took over for me when I left as the young adult ministry. And it was an amazing picture. Not, not too, uh, a little while ago, about six, seven months ago, I got an opportunity to go back. And it's been four years now. And what was amazing is I went into their young adult service, the service I used to run. And I remember looking around, and it was a God moment. Looking around and seeing people who I had never, ever met. But they were there because people in the meet had discipled, had discipled them, and led them to the Lord and invited them to be a part of the group. And I remember the Holy Spirit saying, this is the stuff that you're talking about. This is how it actually looks if you get, ever get a chance to see it. Grandchildren, great-grandchildren in real life spiritually. Not because we did anything great. Not because I did anything great. Because we said, I'm going to love, I'm going to fight, and I'm going to send somebody in the gospel. That's the heart of discipleship. All of us can do transgenerational discipleship. I'm going to have the band come up as we come to a close. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus was no dummy. He knew what he was doing. There's a reason why Jesus chose discipleship as his method to reach the world. See, if, if you're not convinced yet by the text, then maybe I'll convince you with a little bit of math. And I know Pastor David has, has given this example before, but I think it's powerful if you've missed it. It's the example of the super evangelist versus the faithful discipler. right? And so imagine today if I said to you, hey, You have two choices. You can either be a super evangelist where you will lead a thousand people a day to Jesus every day for the for the for the next year. So that's 365,000 people in a year that come to Jesus because of you. That'd be pretty sweet, right? Most of us would be like, sign me up. The other option is you can be a faithful discipler and you have five people. In one year you disciple five people, but at the end of that year, those five each go out and find five, right? So after year one, it's 365,000 to six. A little bit lopsided. Kind of like the Patriots recently. (sighs) After year five, Super Evangelist has 1,825,000. Faithful Discipler has 3,750. Not really close at all. But after year 10, with the power of exponential growth, transgenerational discipleship, the super evangelist has led 3,650,000 people to Jesus. The faithful discipler has 11,718,750. Jesus knew what he was doing. And when he chose to make disciples who made disciples, he knew he was going to reach the world. Now, here's the amazing thing about this. You don't have to be a super evangelist. You don't got to be a pastor. You don't got to be a speaker. You don't have to have all the gifts. You don't have to know the culture even. 
It doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are, doesn't matter your background, your gender, how much money you make, none of that stuff matters. All that it takes is your willingness to say, I'll fight for one. Start with one. Maybe five is too much. Start with one. Say, I'll fight for them. I, I'm, I'm going to love somebody. I'm going to sacrifice in my life to go love them. I'm going to fight for them, and I'm going to send them as I disciple them in Jesus. If, if you leave here today and the Holy Spirit just gives you one, that's a win. Imagine what it would look like in a year from now if the one that God gave each one of us was now following Jesus and making their own one. How that would transform this church and this community. Right? God can use you and wants to use you. He's called you to this. You have everything that it takes. The question is, will you fight? Are you willing? Are you willing to go after the one? So this morning, here's what I want to do. Would you close your eyes? Bow your heads. And I'm going to ask you, as Pastor David comes up, he's going to say a prayer and a blessing over our church. But I'm going to ask you this. If you would say this morning that I'm willing, I'm willing to fight for the one. And maybe God's already given you the name, maybe he hasn't, but you're going to commit to seeking him until he does. If you this morning would say, I am going to go after the one, then would you stand to your feet? Because we're going to pray over us. If that's you, you're saying, I'm going to go after the one. Would you just stand right now?